Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to Current Yield, a Grant's interest rate observer of the air. I am Jim Grant, and with me today, as always, uh, Eric Whitehead at the control panel and the great Evan Lorenz, the deputy editor of Grant's. And uh, we have a special guest today, too. And uh, he is uh, Keith D. Bronstein. Now, Keith um, is, uh, Keith and I went back, I don't know, I, I think, Keith, we first met during the, that little ruckus in 1937, the panic in 1937, it might, I think it was about the, yeah. It was right, yes, it was right about yeah. that time, you're right. Um, Keith um, has been associated during his long and most fruitful business career with the following institutions, a small sample, and here they are. In no particular order, certainly not chronological order, but the uh, Chicago Sulfur Futures Exchange, the Chicago Climate Exchange, the Chicago Options Exchange, the Chicago Board of Trade, the Chicago Mercantile Exchange, University of Chicago, and finally the Chicago Cubs. And, uh, <laughs> and he has, yes, we're, we're we're now we're now after having my elbow fixed, I'm contemplating my return. <laughs> and uh, Keith um, has. Um, in this most eclectic career, has uh, been involved in uh, such things as electronic recycling, and I don't know. And he's uh, a steward of the climate as well as of his family's uh, substantial financial position. I guess I would say, yeah. So, um, so Keith, welcome to Current Yield. Thank you. Lovely being here. Yeah. So Keith, Keith, and I, as I said, I, th- I think Keith, we first met during your time as the I think you were the chairman of the Chicago Board of Trade Business Conduct Committee and other committees, and Correct. we spoke when I was writing editorials for Barron's in the, um, in the I don't know, in the, in the, the Carter regime, I think, in the late 1970s, and it was a delight then, it is a delight now. And ladies and gentlemen, and Keith, the reason we are gathered here together is because of an email that Keith sent, a very, a very uh, uh, I don't know, a very prescient email having to do with the then dormant, but now rather stirring, distant months, out months of the uh, Euro-dollar futures contract. Sounds like a very arcane matter. Will you explain in a few well-chosen words? Well, do you want to hear the gestation of this idea or or something more about well, what tell, a Euro-dollar tell us, contract Tell us what they are first and then tell us why we ought to be paying attention and tell us what the opportunities are. Okay, the Eurodollar future is essentially a proxy for short interest rates um, in the United States. There are uh, trillions of dollars and dollar equivalents priced off of uh, Eurodollar futures uh, around the world. So it's um, uh, it's a contract that is closely associated with uh, interest rate policy and the actual Fed funds rate. Yeah. In the in the most current month, and as you go out the curve, um, it begins to build in what the marketplace expectations are for uh, future changes. Right. So uh, we have been collectively, up until fairly recently, been of the of the view again collectively that uh, the Fed would continue to lift its intervention rate, the so-called federal funds rate, in stair step fashion. The Fed being in control of events, mind you. And that uh, uh, this experiment, a uh, demonstration of the efficacy of the vir- virtu- virtuosity uh, the Federal Reserve would, would play out with a, a more or less uh, seamless return to normalcy, correct? Correct. Right. But your email suggests, Keith, that you found a wrinkle in that story. And what was the wrinkle and what uh, form does it take in the marketplace? Well, the wrinkle in the story actually was inspired by a talk given at the Grants Interest Rate Observer Conference in April of the current year. And that talk was given by David Rosenberg. 
uh, and Jim may remember me hitting him up about that talk not too long after that day that David Rosenberg presented and his presentation, which I wouldn't even attempt to replicate in any way, uh, had plenty of charts and graphs and essentially was an overview of the current state of the U.S. economy, GDP, unemployment, inflation. A grand tour. And a grand tour. A grand, a grand tour and equity valuations. And he put it all into a historical context, which, if I remember correctly, extended as far back as the creation of the Federal Reserve. And I thought it was a really brilliant, elegant uh, uh, walk through that tour. Uh, obviously, there are no guarantees that anybody who does something like this is right or wrong, but his history was very sound. Uh, and uh, in making a forecast based upon his historical evaluation, David Rosenberg took a very uh, uh, mid-case scenario. Uh, the old bell-shaped curve, he got right in the middle of the bell, avoided any tail events. And as we uh, know, look around us right now, tail events are everywhere. But he avoided that and just made a base case for about when the economic expansion should uh, uh, roll over. Uh what would happen to equity valuations in that environment and what the Federal Reserve response would be based upon historical precedent to that. And he made some projections based upon that mid-case. And uh, I don't remember um, off the top of my head whether his mid-case Fed funds rate was minus 1% or minus 1.5%. But, of course, he then parenthetically said, we all know that can't happen. We're not going to have negative interest rates in the United States. Everybody kind of nodded, including myself. But he said this gives you a magnitude of what should happen if it's just a middle case uh, uh, event. So that uh, the general overview and that specific comment got me thinking about things. So um, if one were to prospect for a very uh, uh, low risk, high reward way to exploit um, just a mid-case historical outcome, is there any way to do it? Well, you know, shorting equity indexes or fangs or something like that is certainly not the way to do it. Uh, so um, I prospected a little deeper and was thinking about the Fed funds rate and went out in the euro dollar curve and discovered that one could go out two years and uh, – by calls on Eurodollar futures with roughly two years till expiration for a very, very nominal amount. So what's a nominal amount? A nominal amount is about $100 a contract for the calls. And, uh, and of course, it becomes less nominal depending on how many you buy. But at least per unit, it was a nominal amount. Uh, and you'd have time on your side uh, getting well past what David Rosenberg has explained was a, a, a midpoint. All right. By the time you got the two years out, you were in a tail event in terms of time. At any rate... Uh, so this, this, is, this has got a base, basically a, re, a return to normalcy or return to the, the mean idea. Something terribly radical about expecting that uh, a long, long, long business expansion would finally come to an end. Exactly. Well, Keith, And that's exactly what it was. So, Keith, ladies and gentlemen, we're going to pause just one moment to bring you the word from Finn, which is... Uh, the organization that is going to save you time, money, and uh, both. So, um, you know, I used to look at my calendar first thing in the morning and, uh, and think there's no way I'm getting all this done. I knew I needed help. 
And that's why some of us have started using Finn as our personal assistant. Well, you don't need to uh, spend your time recruiting, training, and managing an assistant. We're going to call up Kelly Girls, which I think is, first of all, you couldn't make that call today. It doesn't ex- exist, and the very name is Anathema, but uh, never mind. You don't need an assistant. What uh, you do need is Finn. You know, schedule meetings with coworkers or clients, answer calls, handle travel plans for your business trips, find and book service providers to fix things around the office. That is if you don't have Eric Whitehead working for you. And then uh, prospect for new business opportunities. So Finn does everything a great assistant can without the cost and commitment of a full-time hire. So if you're someone who doesn't have 40 hours of work every week, you pay for only what you use. Uh, Finn is available 24-7, 365 days a year. Never calling in sick. Got that, Eric? Never calling in sick or taking time off to visit uh, obscure capitals of totalitarian regimes. So Finn has saved us 10-plus hours per week, and we know Finn will help you be more productive so you can grow your business. That's why I've arranged for you, all of you, to try Finn for free. Just use my link, fin, F-I-N, dot com slash grant. That's fin, F-I-N, dot com slash grant. Try fin for free, fin, dot com slash grant. So, Keith, as um, as we speak, um, there have been some uh, disturbances in the equity market. And uh, Evan Lorenz, who was sitting directly across from me, called my attention to what seems like a, a peculiar, indeed, in some respects, an Orwellian phrase. And Evan, why don't, why don't you fill in the listeners about what has been going on in, in Keith's neck of the woods in, in Chicago? Well, it's not just Chicago, it's the world. So um, the other night we learned that the chief financial officer of Huawei, which is one of the largest tech companies in China, was arrested in Canada on the behest of the U.S. This follows the weekend announcement that President Xi Jinping and President Trump are going to have a, a thawing in trade relations. This caused many people to uh, to panic and fear. And, and as the CME was opening up the equity market futures, there were way more sellers than buyers. So, and they, they halted the market uh, something like 40 times so they could actually find more buyers than sellers, but they just kept on finding more sellers and the markets uh, kept selling off. Okay, so Keith, uh, what about uh, Velocity exit events? Did they have any uh, when you were uh, on the board of the Chicago Board of Trade? No, no, that's so, we had occasional Velocity, but the marketplace, <laughs> seemed to find a way to find a market clearing price. And so uh, uh, it, it self exited, if you will. So what do you what do you make of this, Keith, as a as a long time, uh, not only participant in, but also, uh, you know, a, a governor of futures markets? Is this something new and different? Or is this uh, part and parcel of, of what we have come to expect? Well, I, I, I'll start with a, a little preamble that I'm very much a, uh, a free market, uh, dare I say, libertarian, and am always uh, suspect of uh, the heavy hand of regulation. Having said that, I think that uh, I have had a burr in my saddle for years about what I'll just describe as VIX products. Now, VIX products aren't simply VIX. They are the, the vapor rub, right? Water. So, v- pardon, Vix vapor rub or something else? <laughs> yes, yes, uh, Vix volatility ah, product. Okay, uh, and uh, the problem I've had with these products uh, are that uh, I go back to the old school belief that when we're talking about equity markets, we're talking about performing a function of capital formation and allowing for a trans 
transference of risk between owners and uh, who, who don't want to be an owner any longer and new owners. When you talk about commodity futures markets, you are talking about that's a fringe item. It's more of a transference of risk between producers and consumers and investors slash speculators are there to facilitate that risk transference and also take on that risk when there's an imbalance between who wants to hold it and who doesn't in the actual use and production uh, cycle of a commodity. Uh, I have read tomes by PhDs. I've listened to exchange officials and innumerable fund managers who are proponents of VIX products, all because they make money promoting the products. I've yet to be convinced that these products produce any of the things that I mentioned, which is why these markets exist. So they've grown and spiraled and more and more capital has been committed to just a devotion to VIX products. First of all, I got the term wrong. It's velocity logic event. It's a, a term that just rolls wow. off the brain and it, it connotes no real information, but it means that we didn't like where the prices were, so we're shutting down the market and please reevaluate your bids. But they shut down the market something like 40 times last night because there were too many sellers. A, a first question, does the CMA, whenever it's, you know, sees the E-minis for the S&P 500 start rising too much, do they actually shut down the market so they can find more sellers? No. Why is that? Why, why is there not a symmetrical uh, look, you know, for velocity and the upside is velocity and the downside? Does, does velocity and the downside the only kind of velocity that counts? I think that downside velocity is viewed as harmful, and the entire thing is an Orwellian conception. It, it is. You said regulation, but th- this isn't the, 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 the CFTC or the SEC coming to no. the uh, CME saying, you know, we really don't like the prices today. This is the exchange itself saying, we don't like the prices today. Basically, that's true. Now, they're doing it under the guise of market stability, and uh, they're, you know, implied here is that it's... Uh, uh, its uh, instability is bad when it occurs with prices declining. Instability is not considered instability when prices rise. So at Grants, we call the downside the value restoration project. It looks like it's uh, <laughs> it's laboring under a great deal of opposition. Although, you know, I have a, I have a question for you, Keith, with respect to uh, uh, news and its impact on market prices. So the event that Evan mentioned, the arrest in, uh, in Canada at the behest of American authorities of this Chinese uh, businesswoman, this was known to both China and the United States, of course, days ago, right? I think, didn't the arrest occur November 30th, maybe? So either that or the, the first. Yeah. All right, so many days ago. December 1st, maybe. Right, so... My question is this. In a bull market, would not that news have been written off and discounted? Somebody would, say, somebody would have said, well, that's, that's old news. It doesn't matter. But isn't the characteristic of a bear market that bad news is not discounted, but, but rediscounted and, and chewed over and fretted about and perseverated about? And might the pretext of this woman's arrest be a signal of some kind of turn in the, in the equity market? Uh, I would say... Certainly, yes, uh, unequivocally to the former, that it would have been shrugged off in a bull market. The marketplace would have said, oh, you know, they'll work this out. They'll fix it. Uh, You know, this is uh, just some puffing up of chests for some reason that uh, we don't know about. But then she'll be repatriated and, and all will be well. And I agree with you that in a bear market, this becomes a major event. I wonder... Uh, when I saw it, 
um, I thought to myself, well, what if, you know, and I was grasping for names of like second in command. So I, I'm not specifically using this name or this company for any reason other than grasping for something that everybody knows. What if Sheryl Sandberg was on a visit to Vietnam or uh, Cambodia or Taiwan and at the behest of the Chinese government was arrested there and then uh, requested to be repatriated to stand trial in China? What, what would be the U.S. response and what would that appear to be? Um, I, I think I not think a few would, privacy advocates would actually rally on that one. Yeah, yeah, I think it would uh, appear to be a, a pretty nasty thing. So I, I don't know the details of this, but if that's a reasonable metaphor for the situation, um, you know, maybe they're just going to, you know, turn around and uh, uh, bring her into the United States and say, you know, you all have been bad and we're going to continue to punish your co- your company. Uh, by not allowing them free access to our markets and now, you know, get on a plane and go back to uh, uh, China and you're not allowed to come here anymore. Okay, Keith, you are you are, Keith, um, as uh, a professed, just now professed to us, believer in uh, price discovery and in free markets. All right. Since uh, 2008, 2009, thereabouts, uh, the world's interest rate markets have, uh, I would say, not been free, but rather have been under the thumb of central bank regulation. And perhaps one could say, in fact, I will now say it, um, under the thumb of central bank suppression. Now, if that is true, and I, I know it's a contentious point, but I'm, I'm, if indeed interest rates have been suppressed for 10 years, the most critical prices perhaps in capitalism, interest rates, if they have been suppressed for this length of time, what might be the consequences in the capital markets? Well, I, I, I'd start by saying debt trumps equity. And in virtually every cycle, that has been true. And the consequences in the capital markets we're very slowly beginning to see many of them now. Uh, you know, if you look at the, what's going on with corporate triple Bs, with uh, the potential for municipal tension in the ability to borrow and the ability to meet obligations for municipalities, pension funds are underfunded, as is the pension fund guarantee fund. And in a way, uh, with QT progressing, we're certainly seeing a destruction of liquidity. The liquidity was artificial, which is the point you're making. And the response to that, and particularly because of the length of time of that artificiality, I think we're seeing it now. I mean, how many trillions of dollars? I mean, there are definitive numbers on this. How many trillions of dollars were used for stock buybacks and for dividends that were essentially funded by debt? by not necessarily the most creditworthy corporate entities. All of these things are beginning to bubble up, and my guess would be that there will be critical problems that will show up in the high-yield market. Okay, let's, let's, get back, uh, let's get back to, Keith, let's get back to the Euro-dollar futures markets. So the Fed, uh, you know, has its institutional dignity to defend. It, uh, it is on a course to normalize, and uh, there have been a few uh, throat-clearing speeches by uh, senior Fed officials indicating that they are certainly are data-dependent, and they are certainly not bounded and determined to do what they had indicated they might do. They are sensitive and, uh, and thoughtful people. All right, so is this not the preface 
perhaps, to a reversal in monetary policy. And let us say that instead of throat clearing, these same Fed officials come out and say, we are going to reverse course. What happens? Well, I, you know, I, I've been working with my own personal, I hate the, I'm not even going to use the term for myself, that plot. Oh, for Pete's uh, sake. But I'm, I, <laughs> I've been I've been working with my own and some colleagues who've been working with our own level of expectations in looking at the euro dollar market and looking at Fed expectations. And um, right now, what the euro dollar market has done is we are down to the point when you look at the term structure there that it is pricing in at most a 25 basis point rise during this month. And that's it. However, with what is going on today, it's even beginning to whittle away at the likelihood of that 25 basis point rise. And I would add that if the 25 basis point rise occurs, and I I still would say I think it will, um, barring a real meltdown from this level in equities, I I really think if the S&P is trading with a 25 handle when they have their meeting, I'd be very surprised if they raise 25 basis points. It'll all be then in the statements and the, you know, the press conferences, etc. But the market is, uh, at the very least, now beginning to price it in as the last raise in this cycle. And what will happen to Eurodollar futures is that further out on the curve, meaning from, let's say, Dece of 19 out through the 2020 expirations, they will have a big leg up. Uh, Keith, and, and, and in addition to many other things, you're an expert on the uh, agricultural commodities market. And when China reciprocated with uh, tariffs on U.S. ag exports, soy went from over $10 a bushel to uh, to below even $9. Right now, it's just at $9. Even though China's agreed to actually start buying you know more U.S. commodities, including soybeans, it doesn't seem like the soy complex has responded. And looking out at the contract curve out to January 2021, there's not a single point along it where the uh, market's expecting soy to get back above 10 bucks a bushel. Like, is this the market saying that the, the trade negotiations aren't going through? Is there something happening in the, the ag market? What what do you see happening? What does this mean for, I guess, the American farmer and for American and China policy? I, I, I think what the, what the market is saying here is that part of it is a a China trade expectation, but it's woven into what the world supply of soybeans are. And uh, Brazil uh, has been able to, well, Argentina, Brazil, Paraguay, Uruguay, but principally Brazil, have been able to fill this gap of need by China and by the rest of the world, for that matter, uh, has been able to fill this gap much better than the marketplace had uh I'll say hoped for, you know, if you're an American farmer, they've certainly disappointed you by their ability to step into the void. Their production continues to rise. There are tens of millions of uncultivated acres in Brazil, which can be put into cultivation uh, uh, if the profitability for that cultivation exists. Is is this now a permanent loss for Illinois, Nebraska, Iowa? Yeah, tremendous. The U.S. soybean economy is on a knife's edge. Now, I, I, you know, I'm not saying that, that, the, that we have to have a worst-case outcome. I'm not saying that at all. I'm saying we are facing down a potential worst-case outcome. I have a very strong um, historical metaphor for this. In 1973, not ancient history, in 1973, Richard Nixon put in place an embargo on U.S. soybean exports. The U.S. was, quote-unquote, running out, 
and uh, and he was encouraged by whoever were the opinion formers at that time to just embargo soybean exports until our new crop arrived. So the embargo went in place, if I remember, uh, around June of 1973, and it was lifted by the fall of 1973. But that embargo sent a shockwave through world consumers of soybeans. And the Brazilian soybean industry was, when I mean it was in its infancy, there were a handful of seeds in the ground, principally being guided by Peace Corps workers from the U.S. with agricultural backgrounds that were helping Brazil raise itself. And it were particularly Japanese um, multinational firms that invested heavily in generating soybean production in Brazil, financing the generating of soybean production because they didn't want to ever be faced with that loaded gun, pointing at them again, saying you can't have any. So the U.S. soybean economy went through a very bad period of years. It got a slight lift in 1974 because we had a horrific drought. So therefore, production fell, prices rose, but that was unsustainable. It was a matter of months, if I remember correctly. And we really fell off a cliff. And uh, it took until well into the 1980s to rebuild our position of being the principal uh, uh, supplier, the go-to guy for world soybean users. We're kind of doing that again. In the few minutes remaining, I would like to get back to interest rates. And I would like to ask you this. When in your opinion, is the euro dollar futures market going to begin a discount actually lower rates in the future? That is a yet unscripted loosening cycle by the Fed. And if one were of the view that the Fed is going to reverse course, what are the profit opportunities and how does one implement them? Okay, so the the when, um, you know, that's kind of opaque to me. I don't know how to guess what these guys are looking at. I read a uh, a uh, Wall Street research piece the other day saying the Fed can't pause. I emphasize the word can't pause because the unemployment rate will fall to 2%. Uh-huh. I, I, what, what's the logic of that? I don't know, but it was from a prestigious Wall Street firm. I, I, I don't know what that means. There's, I don't there's, know how there's, people there's, think. There's, I don't know how the Fed, I don't know how the Fed governor There's no can't in markets. Anything's possible, we've learned. <laughs> yes. So my feeling is that the Fed uh, is on the cusp of pausing, uh, meaning after the December meeting, and that if they're data dependent, which they claim to be, and I respect them for that, if in fact they are, that um, by the second half of 19, which would be very consistent with David Rosenberg's forecast back in April, by the second half of 19, the easing cycle uh, should be contemplated, if not having begun. And the opportunity is I would continue. I wouldn't be a buyer of anything today, but I would continue to be a, a, a buyer of calls on uh, June 2020, SEP, DS 2020, Eurodollar futures. And probably the calls I would be looking at now, given the way the market has moved, is 97 and a half or 98 calls 
um, or anything in between uh, would be the optimal purchase now. You know, a week or so ago, you know, 97 and a half, even down to 97 was doable. But, yeah. you know, prices have moved. So that's um, there's my time and price expectation <laughs> subject to change. Well, uh, to give one would be generous to give both is extravagant. So um, Keith Prinstein, <laughs> thank you for being with us. And ladies and gentlemen, thank you for listening. Hey, and um, I, I, I guess um, uh, a word about grants. Keith, do you know that uh, next week we are moving um, our office to 233 Broadway, the Woolworth Building in Lower Manhattan, which is where it all started here at Grants 35 years ago. And people say, I don't know where they get this. Some people say I'm like bearish, you know, always, you know, always naked. I have signed at the age of 72 a 10-year lease. Now, is that not bullish? Yeah. I, um, think, that's very, I think that's very bullish. Uh, that, that, that might that might go beyond bullish to reckless, but it, it has happened. So, uh, ladies and gentlemen, thank you again for listening and for listening to this last advertorial. And, uh, Keith, I'll talk to you soon. Thank you, Jim. Good to talk to you in heaven. Okay. Thank Bye-bye. you. Happy and merry, Keith. So long. You too. Bye.